This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The U.S. Supreme Court's six conservatives are ascendant this term, using their supermajority to deliver win after win for extremist conservatives. From overturning the right to an abortion, to asserting gun owners' right to openly carry their weapons, to undermining the EPA's ability to regulate carbon as the climate rapidly changes and more, the nation's highest court appears to be utterly out of step with the desires of most of the public and with the notion of democracy. My guest is Bill Blum, lawyer, retired judge, novelist, writer, and lecturer at USC Annenberg School of Communications and UCLA. Welcome to the program, Bill. Thank you. Always good to be with you. Now, I said six conservatives. Roberts sometimes votes with liberals. Occasionally, uh, he seems to be voting more and more with the other conservatives. But do you uh, see this particular iteration of the U.S. Supreme Court as completely out of step with what the court was meant to be? Is it, is it overstepping its authority? Well, that's a good question. Uh, it certainly is overstepping its authority, but the question that you ask is whether this is different from other eras of American history. And I think that many of us got used to the court during the um, chief justiceship of Earl Warren, and we thought of the court as the protector of minority interests and the rights of women and other underrepresented and disenfranchised groups. And now the court is returning to its historic role as a protector of white oligarchic privilege. So uh, is it a return to the past or what is unique about the present court? That, that's really the question. I think that we're entering a new era of right-wing judicial supremacy. If you go back to the Federalist Papers, you know, the op-eds where people uh, argued about the pros and cons of uh, adopting the Constitution, you look at several of the essays, particularly Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton describes the court as the least dangerous branch of government. Well, I'm not so sure that he got it right. In today's uh, America, with the legislative branch being dysfunctional, and with all of these right-wing activists on the bench, I think that the most dangerous branch of government in many respects domestically is the Supreme Court. The uh, right-wing anti-abortion forces in this country have been the ones pushing hardest to remake the court in order to have their narrow agenda passed, which they have done so. Has abortion been the pathway to this conservative supermajority on the court? Well, abortion, along with uh, the Second Amendment and the horrendous, horrific, historic misreading of the Second Amendment that began with the Heller case in 2008. So you've got pushes coming from many directions, anti-abortion people, gun rights people. You've got pro-corporate influences who are attacking climate change, attacking trade unions changing campaign finance law. And you mentioned John Roberts, and while John Roberts as Chief Justice is sometimes the center swing justice on the court, he's also the author of one of the worst decisions 
handed down during his tenure. That's the Shelby County versus Holder decision, which gutted the uh, part of the Voting Rights Act. So this is an extremely conservative activist court, and it really leaves progressives and liberals with a enormous task before them uh, in terms of how to change the course of American justice. Let's go through some of the new decisions that have come forth. Uh, setting aside abortion, which we have discussed at length, the uh, Second Amendment decision that came uh, forward recently about open carry, that gun owners, handgun owners have the right to openly carry their weapons outside the home for self-defense. I mean, it just strikes me as bizarre that we still uh, outlaw people's um, right to carry weapons in the halls of Congress and in the Supreme Court, and in the White House, because the people who reside there, who work there, are considered too important um, to risk, whose, you know, their lives are too important to risk from, uh, to, from having armed people walking around. And yet the rest of us have to live with that danger, right? I mean, if they have allowed open carry guns everywhere in the country, why not inside the Supreme Court? Well, the, the justices are now adhering to a perverted form of the judicial philosophy known as originalism. Uh, I've never been a fan of originalism. Originalism says that we understand the Constitution according to the original public meaning it had during the founding era. And what that doctrine does, it allows the justices who adhere to it to cherry pick from our very complicated past and arrive at any conclusions they wish to arrive at with regard to any particular gun regulations. And yes, it is extremely hypocritical for the justices to say that we are still going to prohibit firearms in sensitive places like courtrooms, but we're going perhaps to allow them in New York City subways. Or in so, schools or around or schools. schools. I mean, so that means the lives of the rest of us are just not worth the same as the lives of the people that the court exempts from having guns. Well, that's right. What, what, what Alito and Thomas say, both in the Dobbs on abortion and uh, Thomas in the Bruin case on the Second Amendment, is that we do not decide cases according to public opinion. And therefore, we're just going to adhere to the Constitution and we're going to come out with objective decisions when nothing could be further from the truth. Originalism is a scam in which contemporary political values are just shuffled around in order to reach conclusions that they say comport with the original understanding of the Constitution. And, and now I think more and more people are coming to see that this judicial philosophy is just another result-oriented, right-wing activist ploy to get what they want. I mean, originalism so would be pro-slavery, anti-feminist, anti-women's rights. You know, if we go back to what right. the Constitutional originally stood for, is basically the rights of white property owners, slave-owning property owners. Um, Clarence Thomas wouldn't be on an originalist court. That's correct. So it, the, the, if you want to look at a good originalist decision from the old days, look no farther than Dred Scott. Mm. That's the decision that said black Americans have no rights that the white man is bound to respect. That is an originalist decision. Now, the originalists do say we can amend the Constitution and 
and therefore change the meaning of the Constitution. But what's another originalist decision? Plessy versus Ferguson, which upheld the Jim Crow era of segregation that follows all the constitutional amendments after the Civil War. So the, these originalists are really just con men, in my opinion, and con women. Let's not right, uh, forget right. Amy Coney Barrett here. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important point um, that there are plenty of conservative women that are backing the court's hard right turn. Another decision is around the right of a football high school football coach to prey on uh, the field. This seems to be eroding further and further the separation between church and state. And is that ultimately one of the major goals that some Republicans especially are seemingly talking quite openly about, that there should never have been a separation? between the church and state, and that this is a, a Christian nation, so we should be living by That's Christian correct. laws. So Clarence Thomas is among those legal scholars, I'll put that in quotes, who uh, argue that the separation of church and state might exist for the federal government, but doesn't apply to the states, if you look at the original meaning, he says. So it's perfectly fine for different states to favor one religion over another. And you talk about the football coach. Uh, this case was handed down without a developed evidentiary record. This wasn't a coach who by himself went to the 50-yard line and knelt in prayer quietly after the game. There is video of what this coach did. He brought players from both teams and other people for a loud prayer meeting uh, which was quite uh, coercive in terms of uh, it, uh, its impact on people who didn't want to join in the prayers. So this is a, another decision along the road towards elevating what they call religious liberty. You know, at one point, uh, Thomas and Alito were saying, well, religious liberty is a disfavored right, along with the Second Amendment. Now it's a favored right, and the separation of church and state is eroding and this is another vector that the right wing is using to change the Supreme Court and to change American constitutional law. There is also a fear that in a coming case that the court has not yet ruled on, that uh, the conservatives could essentially upend our elections itself, uh, there, that, that it would basically uh, enable state officials other than lawmakers to have a say in how federal elections are conducted. It's a little bit wonky. Um, and I'm wondering if you've heard about what's the oh, sure. worst that could happen on this issue and explain what might be coming down. So this is a case called Moore versus Harper out of North Carolina. And on its face, it's a political gerrymandering case, which involves the Supreme Court of North Carolina invalidating the most recent legislatively drawn voting map for that state. Under North Carolina's state constitution, that's the role of the Supreme Court. It's to determine whether or not these gerrymandered maps are fair. We know that the U.S. Supreme Court in 2019 ruled that political gerrymandering is not a federal issue. So the federal courts can't touch it, but the 2019 Supreme Court case said state courts can. Now, under a little known doctrine called the independent state legislature theory, the Supreme Court is going to review the idea that it's only the state legislature and not other branches of state government that have a say 
in determining the time, place, and manner of federal elections that take place within state boundaries. So this is extremely dangerous because in a gerrymandered state like North Carolina, which is in which Republicans are overrepresented in the state legislature, the state legislature would have a free hand in nullifying the popular vote, say, for the next presidential election. And the independent state legislature theory says that only the state legislature has the last say and state Supreme Courts cannot be involved. Of course, there's prior case law but handed down by the Supreme Court saying that that theory is wrong, but it dates back all the way to the early 20th century. It's been shot down every time. It came up as a concurrence that was written by William Rehnquist in the Bush versus Gore case. So it's now being revived. This is another avenue of attack that these right-wing legal activists are pursuing. And we have to understand, these guys are smart, they're creative, they're relentless, they need to be shot down every time they rear their ugly heads. This is an issue I think we can win, even in this terrible Supreme Court, because should the most extreme version of the independent state legislature theory triumph, we will no longer have popular democracy in many places in the United States, not at all. Forget about all the substantive problems that we have with American democracy. We won't even have procedural democracy. Bill, I, I want to discuss the with you the, the idea of democracy and the court. Right now, because the court is handing down deeply unpopular decisions, there's a uh, fencing around the court, which, you know, of course, is usually symbolic. There's a fear that uh, Supreme Court justices are going to be personally targeted. Indeed, people are protesting at their, uh, in front of some of their homes. It was, of course, the plot, uh, potential uh, or, or alleged plot to um, assassinate Justice Brett Kavanaugh. However, isn't it, I mean, what exactly, sh how exactly should we understand the role of the Supreme Court? Because it's not just a court that's meant to reflect majority opinion, because if it, if it were, we, we wouldn't get needed protections of the rights of minorities, as we have done in the past, right? I mean, so how do you explain to a lay audience the role that a Supreme Court is supposed to play in a democracy? It's not just supposed to reflect public opinion willy-nilly. Well, that's the issue. So on the one hand, you want an independent judiciary, which doesn't base decisions simply according to what is popular. On the other hand, you want a Supreme Court that is conscious of two things. One, that it has to be sensitive to the evolving needs, values, and interests of a changing America. And two, the Supreme Court justices themselves have to understand that they are, at the end of the day, public servants. They are not kings who sit on Mount Olympus and from uh, on high tell the rest of us how we should live at all times and at all places. Now, we know that we're bound by their decisions, but we don't have to believe that their decisions are correct. We retain the right to protest those decisions, to expose their logical, historical, and legal flaws, and to pressure our representatives to make changes in the way that the court 
conducts its business. And there are many proposals out there now to do precisely that. And some of them I think are worth looking at, even though they will take time to implement. There was a moment when there was discussion of the United States Supreme Court being expanded in size so that there weren't just nine individuals making, handing down these monumental decisions. And after President Biden, who convened a commission, essentially brushed that off, it seems as though that is done away with. Um, well, you know, it is done away with for the time being. But uh, remember, people have power in this country if they are organized. And expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court, theoretically at least, only requires an act of Congress. The number of justices isn't set by the Constitution. So that's one reform that's out there. Another is term limits. Another would be what's called jurisdiction stripping. We have various instances of that in the death penalty context, and this is regressive, not progressive. Uh, the court is limited uh, in the number of times it can review habeas corpus petitions filed by death row inmates by virtue of a statute passed in the 1990s. Other statutes could be passed that would require supermajorities to, say, reverse um, federal legislation. Another thing that could be done, say, in the abortion context, if the Democrats ever got their act together and had a real working majority in Congress, they could carve out an exception to the filibuster and pass with a simple majority a federal law protecting abortion rights. That's, that, that's doable. But right now, with the cast of characters that the Democrats have in the Senate, that isn't going to happen. But it's something that could happen. It could, it could easily happen, and it could happen within the next two to four years. And that statute would be consistent with the Dobbs decision. Dobbs says that abortion is not a federal constitutional right, but it doesn't mean that there can't be a federal statute protecting abortion rights. So there are things that can be done, but they require political organization on the part of people who want to see change and who want to bring this court in line with the values of the 21st century and not see it return to the values of the 19th century. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Give out the website where people can read your writing. They can log on to blumslaw.com and they'll find uh, my writing there, including the columns I write for the Progressive Magazine. I collect them there. That's, That's uh, I'm a partner with Roundtable Media on blumslaw.com. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Always a pleasure to be with you. My guest is Bill Blum. He's a lawyer, retired judge, novelist, writer, and lecturer at USC Annenberg School of Communications and UCLA. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.